Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. So good to be with you all again. I hope you didn't forget me. And my beautiful wife, Marilyn. Would you stand up, Marilyn? Isn't she beautiful? I don't know how I got such a beautiful wife, but it's the Lord's doing. I like what Chris just said, a biblical church. You know, very few Christians think about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Do you realize that? They just look for a church with either, you know, the best youth program or the best singing or whatever. Very few people ever think of going to a church that is biblical and that follows biblical patterns. Isn't that interesting? Well, uh, this is that kind of church. The elders here are very concerned about pleasing the Lord in how we gather together. And that's why we do the things we do. Now, if you would just open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Acts 20, verse 17. I'm going to read a few verses here to you. Why don't you stand Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, notice this phrase, you yourself know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You may be seated. This is Paul's final charge to the Ephesian elders. Number one in your outline, you have an outline. uh, If you follow that, you won't have to do a lot of writing. You can listen. And by the way, everything I'm saying is in that book. So don't sit here and exhaust yourself writing and you'll miss so much. So if I see you writing, I'm going to come out and break your pen. (laughs) Just want to warn you. Sit back, relax. Most of you work too hard anyway. It's all written out for you. An extraordinary meeting. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. God has given us a very special gift in this sermon of Paul to the Ephesian elders. Although it was given 2,000 years ago, this is as relevant as today. Everything we need to know about shepherding, caring, protecting is right here. It's right here. And as Chris said, this is an amazing thing. There should be five or ten books on this. I couldn't find one book. And I've been thinking for years, someone needs to write something on this from a pastoral point of view, not just some scholarly view. There's really nothing else in the New Testament comparable to this passage. It's the only place in which Paul directly speaks to the church leaders. He gives them their final marching orders. This passage is chock full of divine truth, important truths. And as you will see, very, very relevant to our day today. Now, some background in Ephesus. Paul labored as a missionary in Ephesus for three years, 52 to 55 A.D. This was one of his most profitable and fruitful uh, ministries and periods of time. Acts 19.10 says, All of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Very fruitful time in his ministry. However, It was also, we're told in the scripture, a very difficult time. Paul says we had many adversaries. Now, Ephesus becomes one of the four major epicenters of early Christianity. Jerusalem is the first, Antioch of Syria, 
Ephesus, and then Rome. Ephesus not only becomes an epicenter of Christianity, it becomes one of the great missionary hubs of early Christianity. Now, in Ephesus, Paul worked with a group of men called elders, also called overseers. These men knew Paul, and he knew them, and they loved one another, as we will see next week as we close this passage. Now, I need to give you just a little bit more background of how Paul arrives at the seaport of Miletus. If you look at the map up here, you'll see where Ephesus is. After three years in Ephesus, he leaves Ephesus, and he heads west to visit his churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. He is gone from Ephesus a full year and a half. So they have not seen him in a year and a half. At that point, Paul, with a group of other men, have a Gentile offering that they have raised, and they're going to take it to Jerusalem. So Paul is traveling with a group of representatives from the Gentile churches, Headed for Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, he stops at the seaport city of Miletus. He does not go to Ephesus because he doesn't have time. He wants to be in the spring for Pentecost, 57 AD. He wants to be in Jerusalem. So he calls the elders to come to him. And they have this very special meeting together. Now, during this year and a half period, he leaves the church in the hands of these elders. So they've had experience now with the absence of their apostle. Now, this farewell speech shows us uh, Paul's high view of the church elders and their indispensable role to protect the church from what is inevitable, and that is false teachers. He calls them wolves. They're coming. He doesn't say, I think, maybe, possibly, who knows what's going to happen. No, he says, I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you. These men have been prepared, though. I believe every new generation of leaders need to rediscover this passage and understand this passage and carry it out. Now, the first thing he says is very interesting, a role model to imitate. When the elders of the church of Ephesus arrived, Paul began his message by reminding them of what they already knew about his life and ministry. He says, you yourself know. Three times he says this. You yourself know. The entire message, however, is a model for them to follow. And guess what? For us today as well. Now, he calls them to follow his example. What is very interesting is the first thing he says. He says here, I serve the Lord with all humility. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he has a call to follow. And he says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He will say this five more times. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, this is not an arrogant demand. Paul could say this without pride because he was imitating Christ. And he wanted nothing more for his people than to imitate Christ. But he's an example of someone who imitates Christ. In the same book, Just a few chapters before, he says this, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And that is why I sent Timothy. The first thing the apostle says to these leaders is imitate my example. He is teaching us something very important, and that is the importance of example, human example. There's a very famous... uh, coach, legendary basketball coach, John Wooden. And he wrote these words. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. Let me read that again, because that's exactly what Paul is saying. Look at my example. You saw my example for three years. Now follow it. The importance of role modeling. The most powerful leadership tool you have is your personal example. Okay, so I want to give you my example. I'm right now going to go back 62 years ago. 
I can see this right in my mind. The first time I went into a Bible-believing church. I had been in a very liberal um, uh, Protestant church. I don't want to tell you what it was. Protestant church. No one ever carried Bibles. I mean, you'd be a religious fanatic if you carried a Bible. Something's wrong with you. The first time I went into a Bible-believing church, you know what? It's visually in my mind right now. 62 years later, I know how those people dressed. I know how they loved to sing. I know the songs they sang. I remember their prayers in the Lord's Supper. Powerful, heartfelt, passionate prayers, like I heard this morning, by the way, and I was very encouraged with your prayers, especially you young men taking leadership in your church. I remember how they carried their Bibles. They all had big black Bibles. Didn't have those nice maroon ones they have today. I knew how those people knew their Bibles. They didn't have, you know, in those days, they literally, most good Christians wouldn't even own a TV. They read their Bibles. It's all in my head here. I can just see it now. Do you know I don't remember a single sermon? I don't. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't learn something. I did learn things. But I don't remember a sermon, but I remember those people. Why? Because of the power of human example. How do children learn? Do you give them a a massive volume of a book? Now, son, read this. You're only one year old. No, they can't even read. How do children learn to speak? How do they learn their values? How do they learn characteristics of their life? How do they do that? Watching. Watching. So here's what I want to say to you. People are watching you. Your spouse is watching you. Your children are watching you. Your grandchildren are watching you. Your fellow leaders are watching you. Your fellow attendees at the church. They're wa- We're all being watched all the time. We don't even realize it, but we are being watched. And consequently, how we act, how I act in front of my wife, my children. I have grandchildren here right now. In front of my dear uh, fellow elders is going to influence them and affect them. That's how life is lived. We may not want to admit how much we follow other people, but we do. That's why Peter says to the elders, be examples to the flock. Never underestimate the extraordinary power of personal life example to influence, inspire other people positively for God. You are actually more influential than you realize. You have more influence than you realize. I read one time that every person has at least 75 people in their network. Now, some of you might have hundreds of people from work, from church, but at least 75 people, neighbors, relatives, people at work, people at church. You have 75 people that know you, and they're watching you. They don't even know they're watching you. It's the way life is lived. Your example is affecting other people. And that's what Paul says. I want you to remember what you already know about the whole time I was with you. Remember it. Now live it. Because I'm imitating Christ. And I want you to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at what he says about this example. Serving the Lord with all humility. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourself know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Now get this, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul calls upon his beloved friends to remember his life example. But what does he want them to remember? Does he want them to remember the expansive travels he had, his brilliant intellect, his indomitable zeal, his heavenly visions, his extraordinary miracles, his divine authority. What is it he wants them to remember? His humility. That sets the tone for the whole thing. I serve the Lord with all humility. Now, he says serving the Lord. The word he uses here for serving the Lord is the verb for Serving as a slave. You have doulos. This is the verb form of doulos. He says to them, I serve the Lord like a slave with all humility. 
at the time of his life-transforming encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, from that point on, Jesus is Lord, and I'm his slave. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.5, which you should know. 2 Corinthians 4.5. For we... For what we proclaim is not ourselves. You ever see these people on TV proclaiming themselves all the time? And you send them your money, you get four times the amount back. Did you know that? If you're that stupid to believe that. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now listen, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Jesus is Lord and I am his slave. And I'm your slave for the sake of our Lord. He's a slave for Jesus. You are not your own, he said, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Do you see yourself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see yourself as a slave of the people here in this church? The best leaders are those who see themselves as servants, not as masters. Now he says, with all Humility. Notice the word all. In other words, humility affected his attitudes, his teaching, his interaction with his fellow workers, and, his le- and the leader-follower relationship. All humility. Humility supersaturated everything he did. He was truly a humble man. Now, the virtues of a humble leader. You might wonder, how can a man who is brilliant and gifted and energetic also be a loving, humble leader. Well, look at Paul. That's why he's saying, follow my example. He had all these gifts. Amazing, amazing man. But he says, I want you to remember, I serve the Lord with all humility. By the way, that's the only way to serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord in arrogance and pride. Let me try to describe how humility would affect your leadership. Now, if you have a home and a wife, you're a leader in your home. Maybe at work, you're a leader. These principles apply to all these situations. Let me give you some examples. A Christ-like, humble attitude makes a leader more teachable, more approachable, more receptive to constructive criticism. It makes him better able to see his own limitations and failures, better able to submit to and work with others, better qualified to deal with sins and failures of other people. A humble leader is less defensive, less prone to fight, quicker to reconcile differences, more at ease in personal relationships. He's not striving for place. The humble soul enjoys promoting the gifts and popularity of others and is not jealous or envious of others' accomplishments. Only with an attitude of all humility can you lead in a Jesus-like way. Now, what he's really warning here is about pride. Pride. In 2010, there was the third Lausanne Congress in Cape Town, Africa. This was started by Billy Graham and John Stott. We had one of our own missionaries there. They only allowed 5,000 people to come. They had to come from every single country in the world. And at the Lausanne Cape Town Conference they made some statements about the evangelical Bible-believing world. I want you to listen to one of the statements, warnings that was given at this Congress. It was agreed by all that lack of humility among pastors was a worldwide harm to believers spiritually and needed to be urgently addressed. 5,000 mission leaders from every single country in the world. Lack of humility is a problem. Pride among leaders is a big problem. What does Paul say? What's the first thing he says? Remember my example. Then he says, serving the Lord with tears. Serving the Lord with tears. Now, what he is doing here is preparing these leaders for his permanent absence. And he wants to prepare them for the heartaches that are ahead and the persecution that is ahead. So, 
One of the things about the United States and its military is preparedness. Preparedness. Very big term. Actually, they've changed the term to readiness. Readiness. So let's say uh, Mr. Putin attacks us. And he sends over his planes and bombs to America. If that were to happen, people wouldn't be scurrying around going, what do we do? Who, who, who's in charge? No, no. Readiness. They are, the United States Army, within minutes, will have airplanes in the air, and they will be mobilized within minutes. Why? Preparedness. Readiness. Now, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's preparing them. He is leaving. There will be a real change when he leads. We'll find out next week why. He wants them prepared. No surprises here. He wants them to know what to do. Well, first of all, he gave them his example. Second, he says, I serve the Lord with tears. It's not easy serving the Lord. There's so many heartaches, so many problems. You'll weep over broken marriages, divided homes, ugly conflicts among church members, untimely deaths, crippling sicknesses we heard about today, um, dreadful addictions of pornography and alcohol and drugs. This is a deeply emotional work. You're dealing with people and all their problems. Paul said, I serve the Lord as a slave with all tears. He was an empathetic man. Jesus wept, Paul wept. Paul says, I weep with those who weep. A friend of mine always says this, the fingerprints of the curse are upon everything. That's a true statement. Every life in this auditorium is affected by sin. No one is escaping it. It affects your body, affects your mind, affects relationships. Sin affects everything. The fall affects everything. The curse touches upon everything in life. We're in enemy-occupied territory. Be prepared. You will serve the Lord, but there will be tears. There will be heartache. There will be some deeply emotional times. I want you to be prepared. Second thing is serving the Lord amidst persecution. Since the day that Cain killed his uh, godly brother Abel, the world and the God of this world has been at war with God, his prophets, his people, and his Messiah. This is the oldest continuous war, war in history. God and Satan. It's gone on since the very beginning. Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he is telling them, persecution is coming. The, Paul served the Lord in persecution. Remember the one story? Forty men band together. We're not going to eat, we're not going to drink till we kill Paul. Remember that story? I often wondered what happened because they didn't kill Paul. <laughs> Did they starve to death? I, no, they didn't. They always have ways around rules. Don't worry. They came up, well, we killed them spiritually. They'll come up with something. Now, here's the point of this. This was organized, planned persecution. What made it very personal is that this was from the covenant people of God, the Jews. Who, knew, who said they knew God and knew the Old Testament and knew God's will, and they're the biggest enemies of Jesus and his uh, followers. Persecution. He was preparing them for organized, planned persecution and determined adversaries who would come after them. My dear friends, some big changes are happening in the Western world. Big changes. Changes that in my life and in John's life we have never seen. There is a new, angry, militant secularism. It's not the old secularism, because in the old secularism, they left us alone. Not today. We are a target. We are a big target, and it's going to get much worse. In our church, we are already seeing people persecuted at work because they won't uh, <coughs> sign, sign, put up the uh, rainbow flag. <laughs> they won't stand or, or give money to certain uh, new organizations. And it's coming, and it's going to get worse. We need to be prepared for persecution. It may come in the form of legislation. It may come in the form of criminalizing some of our beliefs. It'll be discrimination. 
you may not be able to get a job if you don't sign certain documents. Or if you have a job with a big company and the company is all for the new LGBT community, you may be out of a job. That's happening right now, by the way. We've already met with some Christians who are facing this. I just want to say one thing about persecution. How you face persecution is right there in the New Testament. So I've done this already. I've gone through the New Testament and listed all the verses on persecution and suffering. You'd be shocked how much the Scripture talks about suffering and persecution. It's not not a secret. But it also tells us how to handle persecution. So we need to teach our young people and our people how do we respond to persecution. Some of it is based upon our eschatology, how we think of future things. So I want to say to you, as you read your Bible, I want you to look for how much it says about handling persecution. There's there's great teaching in there. You need that now. You need that now. That's what Paul's doing. He's preparing them. I serve the Lord in the midst of persecution and severe persecution. Your theology will matter when persecution comes. Be prepared to teach others these wonderful truths that are revealed in our New Testament. Now next, serving the Lord by teaching and evangelizing all people. Now, this all comes up again next week, so I'm going to push some of this off to next week so I can get to verse 24. I want to make sure that we understand verse 24. Notice what Paul says, holding back nothing that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In other words, there was no aspect of the Christian doctrine that Paul neglected to teach. He did not omit some of the finer details of the faith or adapt the truth to the spirit of the age. They could be sure they had the whole gospel. Everything that he had heard from Christ, because his gospel came, Galatians 1, directly from Christ. Everything he received from Christ, he gave to them. There was lacking nothing. How many churches are afraid to teach all that the Bible teaches? Because people might leave. They may not come. They may not give their money. They may not like us. I can tell you this. From being here three years, there's been no teaching of the scriptures that have been neglected or avoided because they're very unpleasant. Notice he also says declaring all that is profitable. There's not one single point of doctrine that is profitable, helpful, beneficial to the elders that Paul held back. And he's emphatic about this matter because he will repeat the same words in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I'm going to deal with that uh, next week. Now, why is this important? Well, his point is that he was thorough and in-depth. Thorough and in-depth. Now, here's why this is very important. And this is what exactly happens today with cults and false teaching. After Paul would leave, you can see this in Galatians, you can see this in Philippians. After Paul would leave a church, the wolves would come, the false teachers would come. And they would say something like this. You have this in the book of Galatians. Paul didn't give you the whole truth. He he gave you some very good things, but he didn't give you everything. We have that everything. We have what is missing. We've got that. You have to keep the Mosaic law. You have to be circumcised. You have to have certain uh, food regulations. Paul didn't tell you that. That's what the false teacher does. But these elders could say, Paul could say to them, no, I didn't hold anything back. There's no missing doctrine. There's no esoteric doctrine here. I gave you the whole counsel of God. Verse 27. Anyone that comes by and tells you, well, there's more. There's more you need to know. Moroni the angel talked to us. <laughs> Gave us a pearl of grace price, you know. No, they could trust him because he gave them everything they needed, everything Christ gave. There'll be no surprises after Paul leaves. There's no hidden truth to be concealed. 
I want you to listen to this statement, and it comes from uh, Al Mohler's uh, new book, The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. It can be quite depressing, but I want you to listen to what Al Mohler says. The secular age exerts a subtle but constant influence on churches and Christians. It is, if not careful, churches will look less and less like churches and more and more like the secular world around them. In a sense, liberal theology begins to slowly replace orthodox faith. Or, in other cases, churches simply stop talking about and teaching important truths revealed in the Bible. Now, get this. I've underlined it. The failure to teach truth eventually leads to failure of Christ's people even to know the truth. That's a powerful statement. They don't even know the truth. They don't know what they're missing because their leaders have not given them the whole truth. Next, he says, teaching both in public and house to house. Now, his point is how thorough he is and how in-depth he is. These, these men got the greatest theological education. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement, but I've heard it a number of times. People will say something like this. Well, you see, these elders and these Christians, they didn't have the whole New Testament like we have today. And we know that many of these teachings about men and women and things like that uh, need to be brought up into a more contemporary understanding. My friends, these people probably knew more than us. They had the great apostle Paul for three years. They could ask questions any time. I wish I was there. They had the full gospel directly from the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he held back nothing. Everything that was profitable, they had received. Now, he says here, um, he taught them publicly, like in the hall of uh, Tyrannius, in the workshop of the leather shop, he would have met a lot of people in his actual physical employment, which he says he was a tent maker. He would have met a lot of people. People would come to him. It would be a great place for evangelism, great place to meet people. And then he rented the hall of Tyrannius. So in other words, he's saying, everything I taught was public. It's not esoteric. It's not a hidden group of people. We're not a secret society. It's open and public. Everyone heard this. Then he says, teaching in homes. I really like this because some of our greatest teachings have been in home Bible studies. He says, from house to house. In fact, the early church was born in the home. Churches met in homes. That was a great evangelistic tool because it would be comfortable. It would be informal. You could bring your neighbors, your relatives. Come here, this great teacher. And if they were Jews, they would say, well, he's a great rabbi. He knows the Old Testament. Professionally trained under Gamaliel. Could be a very, uh, very uh, drawing of, uh, of people. You have more personal relationships between student and teacher. More comfortable atmosphere. The church was born in the home. There's something about home Bible studies that are so powerful. He was a very creative teacher. He was creative. He was flexible. He was a bold proclaimer of the gospel. He was resourceful. He was thorough. He was forthright. He was a great teacher using every method possible to reach people. So he said, I taught publicly and I taught from home to home. Now, I just want to make a quick comment. We'll come back to this. Christianity is a preaching-teaching movement. Christianity, from the very beginning, has been a preaching-teaching movement, and it starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. When people who actually saw Christ and were with Christ, they all said, teacher. He's a teacher, and Nicodemus nailed it when he said, a teacher come from God. Now, why this great emphasis on preaching and teaching. In fact, listen to this statement by James Orr. If there is a religion in the world which exalts the office of teaching, it is safe to say that it is the religion of Jesus Christ. Now, why is preaching and teaching so central to Christianity? Here's why. You ready? Don't go to sleep on me now. We have a message from God. How do you like that? We have a message from God. We have news 
We do. We have news. It's good news. It's God's plan of salvation, and you need salvation. We are a preaching, teaching movement because we have a message from God, and it's the most important message in the world, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life. Can't get any more important than that. More important than a stock market. Global warming, crime. It's a message from God of your eternal salvation. Jesus was a teacher. Paul was a teacher. Jesus sent the 12 out, Acts 12, Matthew 28, and he sent them out to teach all that I have taught you. Now, his message was repentance and faith. In other words, this message is so important, it demands a response. So he tells us the response that is needed here, and it's looked at from the final appeal. Repentance towards God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. A nice summary statement of what people have to do to respond. Now, you might ask this question, why does it start with repentance towards God? That's because we have revolted against our Creator. And the chief way it's proven that we have revolted against the Creator is idolatry. Romans 1. We are idolatry machines. We'll worship rocks, rats, cows. Look up into the sky, see this massive universe, and say, that piece of wood, that piece of wood, that's our God. That's ridiculous. But that's rebellion. That's what the rebellion. So there must be repentance towards God. Romans 1 tells us the whole story. It says, man suppress the truth that he already knows from nature. He suppresses the truth and he worships creatures. The second thing is sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting? The sign of paganism is worship of things, idolatry, and perverted sexual behavior. Ever heard of that? They have to repent. Have to turn from this. Now, the second thing is the positive one faith, the whole soul's trust in the work and the promises of Jesus Christ. So, you really have in the gospel the negative part, repentance, and then you have the positive part, trust, faith in a person, his words, and his promises, and you will be saved. That's the message. That's the response. That's the proper response. Repentance towards God, faith in this person called the Lord, Jesus, Messiah. Now, he turns now to an absolutely amazing statement, serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And I see that I'm actually going to be able to get to this passage. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to get to it. Must have been a miracle. (laughs) Serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, just before we look at the passage, we have to look at verse 22 and 23. It sets the background. All right, verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, he feels the Spirit of God leading him there, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies, probably through prophets, to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, he's a man probably in his early 60s, and a prophetic word is given. If you go to Jerusalem, imprisonment and many afflictions. This would be the perfect time to retire. (laughs) Head to the Aegean Sea. Get on a cruise. He's done enough for God, hasn't he? I mean, this man's been beat up and tried to be killed over. You know, maybe I won't go ahead right now. Uh, There's another group of men. They'll get the money there. I mean, what what would most of us do, right? Imprisonment and afflictions? Woo, that doesn't sound like fun. That's sure to happen because the Holy Spirit said it. Now, that sets us up for this magnificent passage, serving the Lord wholeheartedly. We get now a remarkable insight into the mind of the great apostle. And here's what he says, verse 24. But I do 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here is one of the most challenging testimonies of personal devotion to Christ recorded in the New Testament. Nothing matters more to Paul than fulfilling and completing the task given to him by the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now, let me ask you this question. What is more precious than our life? Our conscious existence. We are living, breathing things. Everything inside of us wants to keep us alive, preserve our life. Yet he says, I don't count my life of any value in comparison. Now, get that. He's not suicidal. He's not just a negative guy. In comparison to the mission and the commission given to him, my life is not of any value. It's not precious to me in comparison to this. He is so dedicated to Christ and the gospel that his own future, his reputation, his comfort and security are of little account to him. Great theme of self-sacrifice throughout this. Now, there's two things, two illustrations he uses. First, a course to be finished, a ministry to be completed. Paul first uses, which is a very favorite of his, is athletic metaphor. A race. I have a course. I have a race to finish. Now, if you're in a race, one thing you have to do when you're in a race is finish. Persist. Get done. He may not win, but you have to finish. So what he says here is, God has laid out a course for me, and I have to complete it. That's more important than my life, to complete the race in life. It's the life race. It's a marathon. It's a cross country. It's not a dash. Complete that. Same thing's true of you. A course has been set out for you. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Read that. It's about you. We have a course, and the point is we are to endure and to run the whole race. Okay? That's his first illustration. Now, the second one is ministry. Ministry. That must be completed. He says here, this ministry was given to him directly by the risen Lord. I received it from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is important is that the Lord gave him this ministry, this service, this particular work. He got it directly from the Lord. So he must fulfill it. That explains it to us. It explains it to us. Now, he says the Lord. Now, this helps us to understand the motivation behind Paul. There's two great motivating things about the Lord. You can read much more about this in the book. Jesus is Lord. We we read that statement. From the Damascus Road on, Jesus is Lord. I'm his slave. There are two great truths about the Lord. One is he's divine. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The second is the sacrificial atoning work for sinners. He's creator. He's redeemer. I, I better do what he told me to do. He laid a course out. I better take that course. Jesus is creator. Jesus is redeemer. He's Lord. And he is the one who sacrifices his life for sinners. Now, let me give you the logic of Paul here. And it comes from a C.T. Studd, pioneer missionary to China, India, and Africa. And he said this. Here's the reasoning of Paul, beautifully given by Studd. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice will be too great for me to make for him. That's the logic. Real clear, isn't it? He's God. He died for me. There's nothing I could do better than to serve him. And then... Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's Paul's reasoning here. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Notice there was some point in life, maybe early after his conversion, he made this judgment. He made this conclusion. Here it is. 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Watch me now. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Who for their sakes died and was raised. That's the logic. We made this, we made this judgment. If he died for me, I cannot live for myself. I must live for him. Alexander, uh, Eric Alexander was considered one of the great preachers of the 20th century. He was a pastor of Presbyterian Church in Glasgow, Scotland. I've heard many of his messages on tape. I've met him twice when he was here in Colorado Springs. Wonderful man of God. Eric Alexander was led to Christ by his older brother, who was a very, very godly man, a very exceptional man. However, after three years of being in the Lord's service, at 29 years of age, he died. It's one of those questions we'll have to ask the Lord when we get to heaven. After Eric's brother died, he was given uh, his brother's diary. And he found this statement in his brother's diary. In some people's lives, Jesus Christ has no place. In every Christian's life, Jesus Christ Christ does have a place. In many Christians' lives, Jesus Christ has a prominent place. But in a few Christians' lives, I have found that Jesus Christ has a preeminent place. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ is preeminent, and my life actually isn't that important compared to what he's given me to do. I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to end. Is it all right if I go a few minutes over? I know you're all hungry. Probably have had blood pressure drop. You need to eat or you'll pass out. Oh, I heard that voice. Take my time. Thank you, God. All right. I had a neighbor, and um, he had his own business. He had a plumbing business. And he had uh, the most expensive speedboat I've ever seen, top-of-the-line camper, camping equipment, fishing equipment. And because he owned his own business, every Friday, he would take Friday off, and the whole weekend, they would go to the mountains, and there they would fish, they would boat, they would jet ski, they would eat, they would drink plenty of beer, and have just a, giant, a, a, a big party every weekend in the mountains. So I'm in front of his house, and he's got this huge boat there. And we're talking about his life and his boat and his camper. And he says this to me, and I never forgot it, and I put it in the book. He says to me, I live for the weekends. I live for the weekends. What do you think my first thought was? It was very sad. It was idolatry. My first thought was, Paul said, I live for Christ. Nothing wrong with boating, nothing wrong with fishing, getting to the mountains. The Lord wants you to relax. He wants you to have enjoyment in life. But we don't live for that. We live for Christ. We live for the gospel. None of us can say, I live for the weekends to party all weekend. That is idolatry, self-centered living. But we're Christ-centered people. This passage says, I live for the mission that the Lord has given me. And I really don't even consider my life precious in comparison to fulfilling the ministry is given to me. And what is that? Well, here it is. Testifying to the gospel, the grace of God. This is the ministry. This is the course laid out before him. These are divine marching orders. Now, he says the gospel of the grace of God. Remember the word gospel, euangelion. It's the word for good news. The gospel's news. News has to be spoken. Living it is not enough. It has to be spoken. There's a message. Don't ever forget that. We have to live it, but we have words to say. It's good news. It's glad tidings. And one writer said this, could it be that the biblical gospel is in fact the very best news imaginable? I say yes. 
It's news about the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's family, deliverance from spiritual darkness and wrath and death. The gospel includes the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and the exhilarating promise of eternal life, a new heaven and a new earth. That's good news. Anyone know better news? I never heard any better news. And this good news is made possible only by the grace of God displayed in the incarnation of the Son of God. So the gospel is described in verse 24 as the gospel of the grace of God. Grace is one of the most precious words of the New Testament and of the New Testament theology. God's grace is his divine favor, freely given to us, to the undeserving that cannot be earned or merited. Now, very quickly, I'm almost done. You can't know the good news until you first know the really bad news. And the bad news is bad news. It's the horrible nature of sin and mankind's stubborn and rebellion against the Creator and God's just wrath against our lawlessness, disobedience, and rejection of divine authority. That's bad news. Now understand this. God does not owe us anything but righteous judgment. His grace to us is not because we deserve it or because we're such nice people that he can't do anything else but love us. God's grace is his kind and extravagant initiative to provide for ungodly a means of salvation we could never achieve on our own no matter how hard we try. That's grace. And that's why in all the world and among all the religions, there is no other message of salvation like the gospel of the grace of God to sinners provided by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand what Paul says in Ephesians 1.6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul could never get over that, and that's why his life wasn't that important, because he was given a commission to testify to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. That comes first. No wonder Paul was so taken with the doctrine of the gospel, the grace of God, it moved him to be willing to give his life to testify to this message. We need to know this message, protect this message, and proclaim it. And this church has been faithful at that. Now, I don't go to this church anymore, but if I hear you are messy with the gospel of the grace of God, I will come right through that door. I will. And I'll bring my wife with me. And she's pretty fierce. May you never Modify or deny the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we're very grateful for this wonderful sermon by the apostle to the first elders of the first church in Ephesus. Help us to understand these powerful words and may we model them to others. Amen.